Welcome to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Ven, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations with me, your host, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. My special guest for today's episode is a very old university friend who, like me, experienced some unforgettable times when we were at university together, but also some of the most difficult moments of his mental health journey. His name is Sam Northwood. Sam is the founder of cooking Instagram page Samwell Cooks. You'll find out why he chose this name and not Sam Cooks Well, which is the probably better name in the course of this pod. We also discussed the difficulties Sam had at university. He had to retake his second year multiple times and almost didn't graduate, but thankfully, thank God, he did. The turning point in his academic and his mental health journey was when he came out as gay. We go in-depth about his coming out story, the anxieties lived with throughout his life, how university helped him come out of his shell, and a bit of nostalgic chat too about our friendship and some funny stories that won't get either of us fired from our jobs. This is how our check-in went. Sam, welcome to the Just Checking In pod, mate. Thanks so much for coming on letting me check in with you. It's been so, so long since we've seen each other. I believe it was Pete and Joe's wedding. Am I right? How are you keeping, mate? Yeah, it must have been the wedding. Yeah, I'm doing great, thank you. Well, as good as you can be during a lockdown. But yeah, things are going pretty well. Great stuff, man. Your partner, Steve, was the first ever vent champion. So I am delighted to be doing this episode, mate. Hopefully we'll get Steve on in a few weeks as well. But shall we just crack on with the show? Let's kick off the pod, Sam, by talking about your little side hustle, your baby, Samwell Cooks. Why were you inspired to start it and why didn't you call it Sam Cooks Well? Well, I regularly follow Instagram cooking pages. I've always enjoyed cooking. As much as I didn't necessarily show it at certain times, it's something I've always loved. And I figured, well, why don't I give it a go? And essentially, it sounds really silly. I called it Samwell Cooks because my full name being Samuel, which personally I've always hated, but when somebody pronounces it as Samwell, I find it really endearing. And so I've kind of kept it as like a username in certain things. And I thought, yeah, why not? Let's, let's use it for this one. Cooking can be a chore or a joy, depending on who you are, Sam. For me, as someone who has zero patience, it's normally a chore. What is it like for you? Cooking is definitely a joy for me. I can't deny there are the occasional days where I kind of have to cheat and order a takeaway when, when I'm not quite feeling up to it. Super busy day at work or something. But yeah, it's, it's an absolute joy for me. And I think that makes my day a little bit better. It gives me something to do at the end of the day that I enjoy. I wouldn't change that for anything. You told me off air that the platform has encouraged you to make cooking more fun, add more pizzazz and make it a bit more of a show. Do you think that's helped your creativity or maybe even giving you some new skills? Yeah, definitely. It's made me try harder. I think sometimes when you're just cooking for yourself, or in my instance, myself and my partner, you can get a bit lazy and you can cook just to survive. But, you know, it's those little things like buying that extra parmesan. It costs a little bit more. It's kind of only adds a little bit more on top, but actually it makes a dish so much nicer, look nicer, tastier. For me, it's it's made me realise those little tips and tricks, the extra seasonings, making it look nicer on the plate 
might be a bit over the top for some people just for your everyday dinner, but it makes it just a nicer experience and actually gives it a bit more purpose. Do you think it's allowed you to express yourself as an individual more, do you think, outside of cooking? I think so. I hadn't really thought of it that way, to be honest, but it's it's helped me figure out the right reasons for doing something like this. Starting it off, you see these cooking pages that get thousands of likes and everybody loves likes. It feels good. You know, it's, it's a whole kind of mental thing where it makes you feel great that someone else has clicked like on it. But um, I've tried to stop chasing that really because I've actually found that I'm enjoying just sharing my cooking, my baking and just getting the occasional nice comment. Yeah, I've only just started off, but I'm looking forward to actually just gaining more followers organically and just people looking at my baking and liking it rather than just hoping for pressing that like button. Has it been nice that people may have seen a different side to you, Sam, than they perhaps were before? Absolutely. A lot of people have seen me in the past as, I mean, I studied physics at university. You don't necessarily look at someone who's a physicist. I mean, I may have been a bit of a nerd and a bit quiet at times, and people wouldn't have looked at me and thought, oh, he's going to be a cook or he's going to be good at cooking. And I think it surprises people at times. And yeah, it's, it's quite a nice surprise, really. I think a lot of people don't expect it from me. It's a good conversation starter as well, isn't it? A lot of people love food. I'd, I'd argue most people probably love food. And if you can make good food, it's even better. And what do you think Samuel Cooks has taught you about yourself, do you think? Is it just confidence with cooking or perhaps something deeper? I think it's taught me to spend more time doing things that are dear to me. It's been super beneficial that I'm not commuting during lockdown, so I can spend more time cooking. But I think long term, it's made me realise that even after all this, I need to make more time to enjoy cooking. Even if I am commuting, if I'm getting home at 7, 7.30, yeah, I can't spend two, two and a half hours cooking a proper like roasting dish. But I can cook something quick, but tasty. It's still making that time in the context. And I think that's something that prior to lockdown and prior to starting this page, I neglected quite a bit. So I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be beneficial long term. We've talked about Samwell, the cook. Let's go a bit deeper and talk about your own journey now, Sam. So firstly, and I ask all my special guests this question, why don't you tell me about your early life growing up in countryside Sussex, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Sam we meet here? I think it was quite unremarkable. I grew up in a house of seven. So I had four siblings, my parents. I was child number four. I was never massively confident. To be honest, I'd always accepted it as like a personality trait. You know, some people are confident, some people aren't. That's that. That's just me. I was never like hugely popular at school either. Maybe I may have even been the opposite at times. But looking back at it now, I think it it wasn't necessarily me. It was more how I was shaped by my surroundings, maybe that lack of confidence, there was improvements to be made, you know, like it, it wasn't just me. It was something that I think growing up, I've definitely grown out of and I've benefited from realizing that it's not necessarily something you should accept, that maybe you're not feeling very confident. But I think hitting 15, 16 years old in the countryside, growing up in a city, you probably wouldn't experience this. Everybody my age, we all get cars when we hit 17. There's so much countryside to explore, going camping in the woods, dare I say having parties in the woods, probably where you shouldn't be. (laughs) Hitting that point onwards, 16 onwards, was amazing and really came out my shell a little bit, met the right people, maybe sometimes the wrong people. But that, I wouldn't trade for anything. I think that was, age 16 onwards was a fantastic place to grow up. 
You said your childhood wasn't massively remarkable, but you said you were the fourth. I mean, I'm one of four as well, and I'm the third child, so it's not as big, but still quite big. Did having that level of siblings cause any difficulties in making you stand out or having your voice heard, or was it very much a a wholesome, happy childhood in when it came to your, you and your siblings? I was, yeah, I was one of five children, but was with both parents, the household was seven. Now, yeah, it's a very high-pressure situation, right? I mean, we were in a three-bedroom house. <laughs> So being four boys and one girl, you had four boys in two sets of bunk beds and then the girl had her own room, obviously, naturally. But everybody had their own different personality. And I was, dare I say it, if, if any of my siblings listen to this, they might, they might disagree. But I, I think I was the well-behaved one. At times could have been a bit boring. I mean, using an example, when I was like two, three, four years old, apparently my parents could sit me in a trolley in the supermarket and I would be silent, just utter silence throughout the whole thing. And having had the experience of kids before that, being a lot noisier, rowdier in the shop, I'm surprised they didn't wonder if anything was wrong necessarily. Um, But apparently I was just a very boring, just subdued child, which I I quite like the idea of. But definitely high pressure, definitely lots to be learned growing up in a big family like that. But I would say I'm, I'm all the better for it. It's nice having that family community. I've always got that home space I can go back to and I'm aware not everybody might have that. When we chatted off air, mate, anxiety was the big thing that's affected your mental health throughout your life. How did it affect your day-to-day life as you navigated university, which is where the bulk of your mental health difficulties occurred? So everybody comes across problems when they're doing something like university. But when you have anxiety, it can multiply each individual problem multiple times. It can make it seem so much worse. So like worrying if your new friends or course mates like you, what they think of you, what bill is coming next, what coursework is due, what coursework is late. Am I doing a good job at work? Can I afford the groceries this week? How can I explain to my parents I've run out of money this term? Those become impossible to navigate when each one of them is escalated in your own head and you become more and more anxious about it. So instead of actually addressing these problems, I think I ended up shutting off, trying to ignore them, trying to escape from them. And then the next day, you've got even more to add on to it. So it definitely creates a spiral. And that's where things started to go wrong at university. When it came to your anxiety, mate, you said to me during your first and second year, you were consistently failing over and over in your words. Was there a reason for that outside of anxiety? And did you have any support at the time when you were going through it? So maybe I'm being a bit harsh on myself by saying kind of I'm constantly failing over and over. I think the situation just wasn't right. I couldn't afford financially to study at university. I think looking back at it now, that's a cold, hard fact. And at the age of 18, you're pushed into making this decision that's way above your years. You're being pushed into, oh, yeah, borrow all of this money from the government to go to university without any real idea as to what that looks like, how much you'll get how much it costs to live. Like this is your first experience living away from home multiplied by a hundred. You've got to dive in. You've got to borrow all this money. And truth be told, it wasn't the right choice for me. And you're kind of forced into that school, aren't you? If you're not going to university, they want to know why. Is there a reason why? You really should be going. But I didn't have that understanding that it was going to be that tough. I mean, living in the UK, you're taught that financial things like this shouldn't be an obstacle. Education should be accessible, right? There was a level of denial that I must have been doing something wrong. Everybody else around me was able to afford it. There are situations where if my parents had been earning less money, I would have got more money from the government. Being one of five children, I can't expect my parents to pay my way through university. Not when 
they've had other kids go to university or maybe the next one wants to go. It never really worked out. And because of that level of, I must be doing it wrong, that level of self-blame got in the way. And I think that just on top of everything else, it did test a lot of relationships with friends at university at the time. You said to me at the time, you were constantly persecuted by the university during this period, which are quite frank terms to use, Sam. What did you mean by that? Because some listeners might be surprised to hear words like that. Now, I had to attend numerous disciplinary hearings at the university to actually stay on my course. One that stands to mind is I received a letter saying that I had only attended 24% of my lectures and had only handed in 75% of my coursework to date at that year. They actually sent a copy to my parents, which I found a bit odd, being a fully grown adult at university, financially independent. For them to send a letter home was a bit of a strange one. It felt like I was the naughty child. I had to explain to them and justifying to them why I wasn't going to lectures and why my coursework was either not handed in or why it sucked. And just being told, I I remember a specific phrase. They said, you got AAB at A level. So you're obviously capable. Why do you keep doing this? You need to work harder. And yeah, it was like I was being treated like a naughty kid rather than an adult who genuinely needed help. Looking back, Sam, the mental health conversation has come a long way since we were at university together and also within a lot of institutions, although some of them still have a very long way to go. The fact that they were so aggressive in their approach with you could have had serious mental health consequences, couldn't it? If you weren't resilient, you'd been able to get through it. Does that make you angry? What are your sort of emotions about it reflecting? I think it should make me angry. If you'd have asked me a few years ago, I would definitely have agreed. I think I've had so long to reflect on all of it now. And it's kind of, I I dress it up as part of my journey that I don't really look on it with anger anymore because I'm in such a great position nowadays. I look back on things favorably that actually it's all part of where I ended up. But I suppose the only anger would be if it still continues or if there are other people not quite as lucky as me. But I don't think there's any personal anger left. I think I've kind of exhausted it all really. Like you said, you were under huge pressure from the university and also utility companies pressuring you to pay unpaid bills and things like that. What triggers did that create? Because I understand at one point you were terrified to look at your phone. Is that right? Yeah, there was huge anxiety just looking at my phone, you know, checking emails, receiving text messages, just because And there's a very specific example here. I remember finally building up the time, the courage and the willpower to actually go to a lecture that it must have been like the fourth lecture in a series and it was actually the first one I turned up to. There's a layer of anxiety there. Like, I don't know anyone in this lecture. Will they notice I haven't been there? And I turned up, sat down, got all my stuff out and then received a text message stating that a bill was overdue and to contact them immediately. I honestly, I got up and left that lecture in a blind panic and went straight home because that's just not what I needed that day. Like I was already anxious. I was already struggling with what I had to do that day and then just to get out of the blue that text message it made me almost fearful of well what's the next message going to be you know what else needs paying what else can I not afford to to pay so yeah it made you want to hide from it a little bit do any of those triggers still linger today yeah and this is this is something that really surprised me it's a recurring dream or almost nightmare where I can be going about my everyday life so I'm I'm still 26 year old Sam and I'm still doing my job and I'm still living where I am but all of a sudden I realize that I haven't been to university in three months oh no my coursework is due oh wait where's my timetable how do I even find my timetable it's so weird I never thought I could ever 
suffer anything like that. And it, it's not been as, as bad recently or as recurring recently once I realized it happened. But I, yeah, I caught myself one day and I was like, wait, I've been having this dream for a long time now. And it's been amazing to realize that it's exactly those feelings that I had whilst at university. Like you said, mate, you probably weren't in a position to afford university when you went. But during your first attempt at second year, it's fair to say that although the housemates you live with were all great people, they were full-time students, whereas you split your time between work and studying because you didn't have that financial privilege, which is not their fault. Sometimes it caused a bit of friction. Did that ever affect your mental health at the time? Yeah, I'd say it did have a mental health impact. I think to an extent, I think it made me distance myself from certain people because I didn't resent them. And I don't want to say I was jealous of them either, but there was that complex mix of emotions where it's like, why do you get to study trouble free? And I don't. Once again, we're taught from an early age that these kind of things shouldn't be obstacles. But it just always felt like I was on the back foot. And that, that did lead to me holding that little bit of resentment towards people for being able to do what I wanted to do. And then you've got that extra layer where I would come home from work and people would want to party or go out. And I'd struggle to explain like, look, I want to go to bed or I just want to chill out. I can't go out tonight. Or even if I did want to go out, I've got coursework that's late. I've got to go to work tomorrow morning. It was so difficult to actually get that across that I think sometimes I was a little bit absent and would just remove myself rather than properly talking about it do you think that was fomo or fear of missing out looking back on it now yeah definitely there was definitely some some fear of missing out there you tried second year i believe three times before you passed it and got through to third year sam can you tell listeners how this part of your journey finished because despite all you had gone through you were able to come out the other side with a decent degree so i managed to well i managed to make it into into third year just by the skin of my teeth, I managed to get like a, it was like a 40 or 41% average. So I only just made it in. And yeah, things just went well for a third year. I managed to, it was somewhere between like 75, 80% average for the year. And I managed to get like a, a, I managed to get a first on my final year project. And it was way more complex than I could have ever dreamt of doing or achieving. And I was kind of leading the pack. I was doing a similar project with three of us. And I was kind of leading the pack on it. I think partially because I was a little bit older and I'd had all this experience with within the university already. Yeah, I absolutely nailed it. And it was awesome to see that I could actually do what I'd set out to. You spoke a little bit earlier about not wanting any students to have gone through what you went through, Sam. At the time, what resources would have helped you had they been put in place? And do you think they would have helped you cope better or even achieve a higher grade than you did? I know it's all rhetorical, but is there anything you'd suggest or want you know universities to do better which would have helped a person like you at that time to be fair to the university they do have resources in place but in my opinion i think they're in the wrong places i think having somebody in my department in my instance it was kind of the physics department having them there to have them to reach out to to offer to listen to guide me towards the right help it sounds simple but that's what was missing because otherwise i have to build up the confidence to go to a completely external department that specializes in helping students. And I wasn't going to go to them. I didn't have the mental resolve to actually pick myself up and admit something was wrong and actually go to that third party. I needed somebody within my department who could help me in that direction. Despite all you had gone through, how proud of yourself were you then to graduate with a 2-2 and reflecting on it now? Oh man, I'm so proud. My degree nearly went down the pan so many times and there were instances where I had to wait for weeks to get like my appeal results through when I thought 
I'd thrown all this money down the drain. I'd never get my degree. So to actually get it, granted, it was a 2-2, which is not where I set off to begin with, but it's much better than I could have hoped for after my disaster. Yeah, I'm so proud of it. And yeah, I, I couldn't ask for any more. Given everything that happened, I look back on it with such pride. And just as a final question before we move on, Sam, having successfully made it out of that difficult period of your mental health, what did that period teach you about yourself? It taught me that I'm a lot more resilient than I ever gave myself credit for. One of my old teachers at secondary school described me as tenacious and I never understood why. And I think actually it was much more fitting than I ever realised. And it's also given me a greater empathy towards other people because nobody knew what was going on in my life. And it's made me realise that there's a lot of people out there with things going on you don't realise. And it's made me much more open to the idea that of why other people do things or what people are going through. And so I've built up a great deal of empathy during that whole process too. When you were going through that negative period of your mental health, Sam, there was something else bubbling under the surface, waiting to explode if you didn't address it. In your second year of university, you came out as gay. Let's go back a bit before we discuss your coming out story. When did you first realise you had feelings for other men and maybe a bit different to other boys in your school or your class? Now, this is always very difficult to pinpoint because it's a real gradual process of figuring out maybe you're a bit different, something's not quite right. I mean, you grow up in a heteronormative society where you're assumed to be heterosexual until you say otherwise. So you grow up, people are looking at girls in the playground or your dad sees a woman on the TV and goes, oh, wow, look at that. And you're like, uh, what about her? And that's when you start to realise things are a bit different. Everyone's doing that stereotypical heterosexual male thing of, oh, wow, look at her. And you're just like, which one? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what you're looking at here. So that, that's when you start to notice things are a bit different. But thinking about it now, it was much earlier than I ever realised. But because you're not taught about these things, because people seem to try and shield their children from learning about homosexuality, because, I don't know, they seem to think it might corrupt them of some way, you had no reference point. You had no reference point to understand what was different about you because especially growing up in the countryside, there were no gay role models. There was nobody for me to look up to and think, actually, they are like me. If anything, you just felt different. You told me off air that every night and morning you would have a thought pop into your head that said, maybe I'm gay. And then the opposite thought that you weren't the next day. How did that overthinking affect your mental health? Was that incredibly hard to sort of navigate, especially in a Sussex countryside where there weren't a lot of gay people? It's exhausting and it's wholly frustrating as well because some days you think you're getting to a real mental breakthrough and then you'll wake up the next morning, you've changed your answer completely and you're making it for the wrong reasons as well. It's, oh, will I upset this person? Will I be treated different? And if you can't be yourself or decide who you are, it makes everything else in your life difficult too. It makes it easier to hide yourself and to lie and you don't really have a chance to actually be open with anybody and that takes a big toll. Before you came out, Sam... Was the anxiety you were having about your sexuality affecting other parts of your life? Yeah, it was easier to find other things to blame and not even consciously. I mean, because I didn't realise what a big internal struggle this was. I could blame it on my surroundings, my situations. And I think some people must have thought I was quite closed off or in some instances, maybe, well, maybe a bit of an arse at times. Because in reality, I wasn't being true to myself. I could have been quite quite angry at times and people wouldn't know why. I want to talk about the coming out story now because 
when we all found out as mates, it was a shock for sure, but I think a, a positive shock, if that makes sense. Can you tell me about it from your perspective? You know, who did you tell first? What impact did it have? And was it a turning point in your life? So I think as somebody who, yeah, I'll say hid, if somebody who hid their sexuality for so long, for it to be a shock is a great thing. It means nobody suspected a thing, which means I certainly did my job well. It was at the point where I'd lived in Brighton for a bit, gone to university there, and obviously being in the gay capital of the UK certainly helps you understand where you might be in that journey. Now, I think part of coming out was a bit involuntary. It was massively where I was at the time. It was the weekend before Glastonbury that year, and I was certainly worse for wear in Southampton. We'd stopped off at Southampton to party with a few mates beforehand. And yeah, I came out to my best mate from home, Jake. Essentially, his reaction was like, brilliant. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. And obviously, maybe being a bit worse for wear, everybody we kind of did that whole kind of drunk chat thing. Everybody does it. And from there, it, it went a bit mad, really. Went to Glastonbury and decided at that point I needed to tell all my university friends, seeing as... It was not necessarily it was going to get out, but it felt like, well, now I've told someone, I might as well tell some other people now. So I told all my university friends that were there at Glastonbury at the time, and their reaction was fantastic as well. And then a few weeks after getting home, telling my mum, telling the rest of my family, it's not just coming out once. You have to come out multiple times um, and it never stops. But there was a huge snowball effect where once I told one person, it kind of got easier each time. And if anything, it became like, I want to tell someone more because it's my story to tell. I don't want them to find out secondhand. But now I'm even past that. I don't care if people know that I'm gay, if people tell other people that I'm gay. So now I'm kind of at a point where it's kind of self-sustaining. Go tell someone so I don't have to. What were those first few weeks and months like after you came out? Did you feel like a, a weight had been lifted off your shoulders? Or like you said, you know, the more you told people, the more normalised it became? That's the best way of saying it. It might seem like a cliche. And it's something that I'd heard time and time again in other coming out stories. It was a weight lifted off my shoulders. Absolutely, it was such a relief. And then it kind of sets in a little bit of pride that I've been through this journey. I've been struggling with this for so many years. And now I'm at a point where it was kind of worth it. And I'm not done with the journey, but just to get those years of frustration off your chest is a feeling like no other. And how did you grow as a person after you came out, Sam? You know, did you develop any new interests, hobbies, experiences? Tell me about the Sam we meet at this point as opposed to the one that might have been struggling at university. This is the point where everything started to slot into place in my life. I became more confident. I became happier to be me. It took a bit of time. I was hugely ignorant to the LGBTQ plus community. And once again, that was because I was hiding from them because I wasn't quite sure whether it was me or, you know, you tend to ignore it a little bit because you're wanting to try and suppress those feelings. So I've spent much more time learning about the community, being much more open and accepting of all members of the community as well. I think it's just all around made me a better person, really. You've been with your partner and first ever vent champion, Steve, for a number of years now, Sam. How did you meet? What first made you attracted to Steve? And how has he supported you on this journey of self-acceptance? And maybe how have you supported him too? I love our story. And a lot of people seem to love it too, because we were both working in a retail job. Goodness, it was it was at some point during university. At the time, we were both heterosexual. We both had no idea of the internal struggles each other was going through. And it turns out, we were both in very similar positions where we were both relatively confident at that point that we were gay, but we hadn't really told anyone, nor we're at a point where we were going to come out. And I do recall there being that connection. And that seems super, super interesting that we can both be heterosexual at the time, 
But looking back, we definitely, definitely had that connection when we were working there. And go forward a few years, when Steve had left that job, we ended up reconnecting. I think at that point, we were both out, not fully to everybody, but that just kind of accelerated the process. That was like, cool, let's tell more family members, introduce you to people. It makes it a lot easier. And to a certain extent, having a partner to go through that journey with, yeah, makes it so much easier, makes you much more self-accepting because you've got something to be proud of. You've kind of got someone to show and go, hey, this is Steve. Do you feel like you could be the truest and best version of yourself if you hadn't come out, Sam? No, no, I couldn't have been. I would have been living a lie. In my mind, it was always going to be much later in life. I was going to spend so many more years figuring it out, but I could never have been me. And I wouldn't have done half the things that I've done nowadays in terms of career, personal life. It would have held me back for years. And has this part of your journey taught you anything about yourself you weren't expecting, maybe? This part of the journey has taught me a lot about how stereotypes are used and how I'd use them as well. I think there was always an assumption that some of the gay people you see on TV might be how I have to act, but it's not necessarily like that. And it's not always the same either. I mean, I would personally say that I have many more camp moments than I would ever have thought. <laughs> and they're quite funny because I, I never thought it, would, it was me, but it's not always part of being gay, but it's, it's quite funny when it does happen. Like it's, it's I don't know, it's, it's quite an interesting experience when you find part of your personality that you didn't know existed. And just as a final question, Sam, if there's anyone listening to this pod who might be struggling to come to terms with their own sexuality, obviously we're not here to say you should definitely come out or you should definitely not come out and all that sort of stuff. It's completely on them. But what advice or message would you give them from your experience? The main advice that I would give, because every journey is different, the only thing that I would say that should be consistent is find your safe space. Try and find people who will love you regardless of anything and it will make things much easier. We've come to my favourite part of the pod, Sam, which is a reminisce, nostalgic chat about our friendship and our university time together. Before we do that, I want to ask you just quickly about how the university experience, not, not the university maybe, shaped you into the person speaking to me today. How did it do that for you, Sam? I would say that the university experience was huge for me. It did push me outside my comfort zone and meet a lot of people that I would never have met beforehand. And going from quite a, not isolated, I mean, we weren't in the middle of nowhere, but going from a relatively undiverse Sussex countryside to a very diverse university with people from all sorts of different backgrounds, parts of the country, cultures, beliefs, and it really opened my eyes and I think it set the tone for, I suppose, dare I say it, the rest of my life, actually not being just from that countryside area, actually being a bit more open to everyone. The funniest part of our chat off air, Sam, was when you said to me, and I, I feel exactly the same way now, I would go back to first year in a heartbeat, but I'm not sure I'd survive it now. That that just completely, just, that completely uh, came home to me about how I probably couldn't do it either. The halls you were in, one of my close mates from sixth form college, Hasib ended up in it so naturally I bundled my way into the social group sometimes probably by force than anything else what are some of your favorite memories from that halls feel free to give a few shout outs if you want to there are so many I mean some of it was those stories that you hear from people that went to university years ago and you always wonder are these really true are they actually going to happen and wow they really did it's all the silly things like as an entire floor going and marching down to the local co-op and walking out with nothing but meal deals and bottles of Lambrini, while all the time 
chanting or shouting stupid things whilst doing it. And it was an amazing experience. You know, just everybody, obviously my my home was top floor Kent House, but just the, the whole of Kent House was so funny. It was... I don't know. It, it felt like it had been a scripted story, you know? It felt like somebody had tried to write a story about how ridiculous a group of students can get in one building. And we became that. And it was hilarious. And it was funny. A bit overwhelming at times. And then there were just the times where, I mean, I can't remember who was doing it, but just laying in bed and you can hear somebody outside my room unrolling loads of tape and just giggling. And you're like, what am I going to find out there? <laughs> you know? <laughs> There were so many wonky nights that occurred and I can't really repeat any of them on this podcast because I'll probably get fired from my job. The wonkiest was definitely the last night of Freshers at Club Audio, which is now called Patterns, where we saw a DJ set from late 2010s DJing staple, Cyril Hahn. What are some of your favourite memories and nights out from that night out or from others that you, you want to share or meant a lot to you when it came to kind of your bonding experiences and maybe a positive impact on your mental health? So I think... Part of it was that it felt like everybody was welcome to go out with our group. It wasn't like, I don't know, sometimes, you know, you can always say, I suppose I think back to like US colleges in like how they're depicted in films and you've got the popular groups and the unpopular groups. And none of that was really like that with, with these guys. We all just went out clubbing. There are many nights that I don't remember much of, or it's all a blur, but you've always got to think about the, the bus journeys out, right? Just everybody on the back seat of the bus i wonder how none of us got kicked off those buses or how the bus drivers even deal with it and whether it still happens today i mean i feel a little bit sorry for them but it was just so funny it's just for, for a bunch of grown adults all to be piling onto that back seat when you've got like 30 people and you're like yeah we're not going to be able to do this ever again so we've got to make the most of it now there was one legendary person in kent house called james cole who was pretty much a legend at the university full stop there was a story you told me. I mean, there's many stories you could tell with tell James Cole. I don't want to get him in trouble. But there was one you told me about walking into his room where he didn't have a bed and he was holding a picture. Can you just can you just tell that story to me? Because it's one of the funniest ones I've heard. This is so good. Yeah, I, I discovered this picture on my phone the other day and uh, I can only guess part of the context. But it's just James laying on the floor posing with a picture of the den that's Millwall's ground isn't it with this chair that's in pieces next to him with a bin that's fallen over and it's it's just the best chaotic photo do you remember that photo in the news a little while ago where it was like one man had fallen over and was laying in a row with his beer one person was being arrested it was a work of art like that it's just pure art it summarizes a lot of what went on that building you'd walk into a room and you'd be like Wow, I've I've learned a lot just from seeing just from seeing what I've seen right now. Do you think you're still benefiting from the social skills you gained in university today, mate? Yeah, I think so. I think I didn't know it at the time. I just kind of went with the flow, but I was pushed hugely outside my comfort zone, but in a positive way when it came to those kind of friendships and getting to know new people. Yeah, I I think I will always benefit from the social aspect of university. And as a final question before we move on, Sam, me and you both went through extremely difficult periods of our mental health at university. At the time, the mental health conversation was in a very different place and space. I showed some pretty big red flags to people, not just in our group, but in t to other groups as well. Some people responded well, others perhaps didn't, and that's probably not their fault. I don't hold anything against those people. Was it ignorance, do you think, or negligence here? In my opinion, I think it was ignorance. I think we were all quite young. You're much younger than you feel at that age. Um, you don't realise that there's a lot to learn. 
And none of us are equipped to really help and to listen. There was nothing in school about mental health. There was nothing really taught to us by that age. And I think, to be totally honest, Freddie, if, if you'd have been more open with me at university, I don't think I would have been supportive enough. I don't think I would have dealt with that conversation very well. I see that in a lot of people. I, I wouldn't see any malice there or intent from other people, but we just weren't equipped. We just did not have the tools to help those conversations. I just thought of one more question, Sam. So for you, what is the number one favourite memory you have from Kent House or from university in general? I do have something that sticks out just because of how ridiculous it got. It's another James story. So apologies, James. But um, do you remember the protests that were happening at uh, the university? They were due to the privatisation. There was a plan that we'd heard of, like, it was like an underground plan where people were going to break into the building that the co-op was in and try and occupy one of the meeting rooms, one of the big important meeting rooms. And we were like, nah, that's never going to happen. Nobody's got a plan. And we just happened to find somebody in co-op who said that, yeah, I know when it's happening and where it's happening. And so we went along with him. We thought it'd be funny. And it, it just, it culminated with us ending up on the roof of this building, like... <laughs> having climbed out of a window with a bunch of other people on our way to go occupy this room that the the, the building was guarded by security it was just like a comedy film it was just a comedy of errors that led us to that point and we were like oh we're too far in now and we we ended up in that conference room i mean i had to leave the next day because i was like dude i've got a lab session like really sorry guys i'm gonna have to go out and just just walked out past the security they were letting people out because of course you want to do that it was so funny you couldn't write it it went from just a conversation in co-op to us ending up being on the roof of a university building we shouldn't have been on and yeah i just absolutely love it it just it went from zero to a hundred real quick and it was so funny we have come to the final topic this conversation and podcast Sam and it's one I try and have with all my special guests which is a general natter and chat about our mental health so firstly and given we are recording at time of pandemic although restrictions are starting to ease a little bit how would you say your mental health is at the moment mate I'd say it's it's surprisingly good at the moment it's obviously been difficult with lockdown and everything but I think I caught myself a few months ago with lack of human interaction lack of getting yourself out there lack of spending time doing things like this And uh, you lose that confidence. You start to gain a bit more anxiety around doing day-to-day things. So I did catch myself. And luckily, by doing things like this podcast has helped me kind of rein it in a little bit. And if you felt comfortable saying, mate, what mental health issues or conditions, if any, do you live with? And how do they affect you in your day-to-day life? So I've, I've never been formally diagnosed with anything. And I think I'm very lucky to be able to say that. The main thing for me has always been around anxiety and it does affect you day to day. There's no cure, but there's things that I've found that can help me. Once you find those things that help, you need to really keep on top of it. What age do you think you were, Sam, when you first realised or became self-aware that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? It must have been at least 18 years old and beyond and even beyond maybe kind of like early 20s because that's when I started to realize that there's nothing wrong with looking at your mental health objectively and that actually there's things that you can do to improve it and that those thoughts had never crossed my mind before that point and that's when I started to actually understand and and adapt to kind of what's happening. Can you tell me the story about the first time you had a conversation with someone about your mental health? Who was it with? 
what impact did it have and did it feel like a big burden had lifted or a big weight had been lifted off your shoulders or did it feel like something quite insignificant and normalised? I don't think I can pinpoint kind of at a particular moment but it's it once again it was it was all around that kind of in my early 20s meeting my partner having a family member diagnosed with depression and it just opens up those conversations and it, it really normalized it for me. So there was never really kind of a groundbreaking moment. And it makes me realize that I'm very much more open to these conversations than I ever used to be. But I don't really know when that happened. It was just a very gradual process. What triggers do you have in life that affect your mental health, Sam? So it could be something that someone says to you. It could be a sound. It could be a social environment. Or have you not figured all of them out yet? I haven't figured all of them out yet. Just one big one for me is just meeting new people. I used to think that I just sucked at meeting new people and keeping conversations going, but actually it's just that nagging, what if I say the wrong thing? What if I say something embarrassing? And then worrying about what you've said for the next couple of weeks afterwards, you know? But other than that, I haven't properly identified all the triggers, I don't think. You mentioned finding your tools a bit earlier, Sam. What tools have you found out that you can use to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have you found that have worked for you and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't worked out? I've found that personally, meditation has helped me a lot. I'm using one of the meditation apps and I'm very, very fortunate that at work, we even have like a meditation room. My employer is very open to these things. And so that has helped me hugely. And it's not necessarily having to meditate every time you're anxious. It's like learning a new skill. And there have been periods of time where I haven't meditated in maybe three, four, five months, because actually I've learned how to deal with what I'm going through without having that constant need to meditate. It's more like a top-up session. It's more like understanding your own mind. And that's been huge for me. And other than that, just having good people around me that I can be vulnerable around, I can be open and honest. That's my partner, that's my employer to an extent, that's my friends. And just having that combination of people that I could literally just speak to about how I'm feeling has worked wonders. Toxic masculinity is something we try and break down a lot on this pod, Sam, and hopefully in a few more years, maybe a few more pods, it will be in a very small minority. What does it mean to you and how do we think we tackle it? And maybe what examples have you experienced as well? Toxic masculinity is always, it's a really interesting idea in my head because I know it when I see it, but I can't really explain it. And for my personal journey, a lot of the fear of coming out as gay is partially around that toxic masculinity where some people are almost violently masculine. There's almost a competition to, I can be more manly than you are. If you're not manly, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you at the gym? And that can really stall these conversations and can really stall these developments. When you're trying to figure something out, like, am I gay? You instantly think, well, actually, everybody else is trying to be manly. Maybe that's where I should head. And I think it's it's just learning that it's okay to be vulnerable and it's okay to, well, not follow everybody else. And most importantly, the idea of having to be a man, I think just getting rid of that idea. There's no need for anybody to be the same as anybody else. There's no need to follow the crowd. And there should be no expectation of how manly somebody is. That's just, it shouldn't even be a measure. I also talk a lot on this pod, Sam, about positive masculinity. And then hopefully in a few more years, maybe a few more pods, masculinity will just be something wholly positive and not derided in some circles. For you, what are some of the qualities you think a man should have to exude to be described as positively masculine? So for example... Some guests have talked about self-confidence. Some guests have talked about empathy, supporting others, self-awareness. What can you tell me here? 
for me, it's important for people to look at themselves objectively and understand their own biases and actually identify where they may be contributing towards the toxic masculinity. And I think when you understand that about yourself, where you may have contributed towards it, I think that's where you can start to break it down and actually bring positive masculinity. And as a final question, mate, it's a broad one, but what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or their mental health if they want to do it? I think we just need to keep talking about it. We need to keep making noise and spreading the word and making sure people hear it as well. You can tell somebody that they can reach out whenever you want, but that message might get lost in a week's time, in a month's time. You need to keep on reminding it. Message some of your friends. If you've kind of got a group chat and say, hey guys, if you ever need to talk, I'm here. And do you know what? Even set the expectation, actually, if I ever need to talk, I might reach out to you as well. If you have the tools to be able to have that conversation, just remind people where you can and spread the word. Well, we have come to the end of this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big thank you to my old mate, Sam, for being my special guest on this episode's pod and for letting me check in with him. As always, thank you to all the vendors who tuned in. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give it a share on social media, tell your friends or work colleagues about it. Or if you like what we're doing here at Vent, please consider supporting our Patreon, which is at www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk, or give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I just forgot, I'll also chuck in a link to where you can follow Sam Wellcook's Instagram page too. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember... It's always okay to vent. Bye.